Well, good morning. If you brought a Bible, go ahead and open it to the book of Psalms. If you've been with us, you know that we are in a study of the Psalms this summer. Psalm 88 is what we'll be looking at this morning. Just uh, a little bit looking down the road. I know that as we kind of leave this Sunday, the next couple weeks, school will be starting back up. Uh, Teachers going back to school, people going back to college. Uh, For many, that is exciting. (laughs) For some, that is not. Um, But uh, it's kind of strange to even feel that the summer is almost over. Uh, So we will be in the Psalms for a few more weeks. And then after Labor Day weekend, the Sunday after Labor Day, we'll begin our fall series in the book of Joshua. So I just want to put that out in front of you all as we um, wrap up these last few weeks of the summer. So, of course, it's it's still going to feel like summer. I don't want to, you know tricky there, but uh, anyways. All right, Uh, Psalm 88. Um, Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word this this morning. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master, according to Eliph, Leonath, a mascal of Heman, the Ezraite. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit and the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me and you overwhelm me with all your waves, Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you, Selah? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you in the morning. My prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we ask uh, now that you would uh, be gracious to us. Give us your Holy Spirit to open our eyes and our ears that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not. That we may leave here changed people for your glory. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Nine short years ago, we took an extended family trip to Yosemite National Park. And um, whether you've been there or not, this is... Probably the most beautiful place in the world. It definitely is the most beautiful valley in the world. Uh, we would drive in 
to the valley every day while we were there. And when you drive in from the west, you, you drive in on a road called Wawona Road. And as you're driving down, you sort of get glimpses upon, around every turn of what's waiting for you, uh, of, of just this incredible valley. And then finally you get down in there and you make that final turn and, 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 and you just sort of see it for a brief second before you go into Wawona Tunnel. And it's sort of a joke. It's kind of like you've got the camera ready. You're right up there by the glass as if, you know, you're not going to actually be in the valley moments, but you're just so excited about it. But then you go into this tunnel and it's just darkness. But you, okay, you're waiting. We know what's coming on the other side. And as you get out on the other side of that tunnel, boom, there it is. Like just the majestic view of Yosemite Valley. You got Bridal Falls here. You've got El Capitan here. You've got Yellowstone Fall or Yosemite Falls here and, and Half Dome. And it's all right there in that sort of iconic view that everybody has taken thousands of pictures of. Uh, that pictures just cannot do justice. The beauty of this place, it is amazing. Well, this morning, we come to Psalm 88, which has been called the saddest and the darkest prayer in the Psalter. Uh, It is, as one theologian writes, and I'm just preparing you for this up front, one wail of sorrow from beginning to end. Uh, this psalm is depressing and it's, uh, it's hard to read. For some of us in here, we don't understand this psalm. For others in here, this is our lives. We understand this all too well. Because what this psalm is saying is that, that there, there, are, there are some of us, all of us, at, at times experience life in the valley. All of us at times, are, we're going to have bad days or just things are going to come across uh, our, uh, and into our lives that are going to be challenges, they're going to be sad, they're going to be depressing, we're going to be in that valley, but there's going to be something that's going to bring us to the other side to, to catch that view, so to speak. The psalm is saying that there are those who live in the valley at times, but it is also saying, more to the point, that there are those, though, that live in the tunnel in the valley, in the deep, deep darkness that life brings them. That's Psalm 88, and it feels like death. And that's where this writer is. And this is where many today live with whether it's deep, deep chronic depression. Maybe, maybe it's dementia. Maybe it's just nearness to death. That you know you cannot stop. Doctors cannot stop. There is nothing that can stop this. Or maybe it's just circumstances that feel as though God has hidden himself from them. Life really can and often does feel like this dark, dark tunnel that you're living in. And what Psalm 88 does is that it validates for us. The darkness that, we, that many of us live in day in and day out. That many others do not understand. And it gives space to cry out to God, verbalizing their experience without any disclaimer. Without any, it's going to get better. What I want us to understand and see this morning is the honesty 
of this psalm and how it intends to shape us. And then after that, I want to look at four implications that flow out of this psalm for those that live in the tunnel, in the darkness, and for those who also come alongside those who live in that tunnel. Because believe it or not, there is hope in this psalm exactly as it is. So let's look at the honesty of the passage. The most positive and most comforting verses in this entire psalm are right there in the beginning, verses 1 and 2. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. And then it just gets worse from here. This is a psalm that is in the first person. It is a personal psalm. It is between the writer or the reader even and God himself and none other. There are no other people uh, uh, that are mentioned in this psalm. We don't know exactly what this person is going through, but it's more than just I'm having a bad day. Or I feel a little depressed because it is raining outside. It is far more intense than that. If we look at verse 3. And I just want to look at this text uh, to get a sense of the honesty. Verse 3, for my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. Sheol is that word we read in the Psalms that describes life uh, after death in this confusing place. It's, it's a hard word to define, but it's, it's where one goes at death in the Old Testament. And from the very beginning here, the writer expresses being on the threshold of Sheol. Uh, awaiting, as one commentary puts it, the moment when breath finally leaves the body and it is time to enter Sheol. Verse 4, I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. In other words, I am as good as dead. The word pit, somewhat similar to Sheol, refers more to the grave site where bodies are just thrown in. The company the writer now keeps are the dead. And we know from later on that the psalm, uh, that as he writes, that his friends and loved ones have abandoned or they're gone. And see, it's at this point, as we, if we're familiar with laments, which this is, it's at this point that, that we're ready for the writer to shift. All right, okay, it's bad. We got it. But, but we're ready for the, what we call the resolve of the lament. And, and, and that is, most laments begin with a phrase, or excuse me, begin with a praise. And they begin with some sort of a declaration of, of faith or truth in who God is. And then it moves into the crying out portion of the lament. But then it resolves. It comes back to the praise. It comes back to the truth of, of who we are to follow and who is our stronghold and who I will give thanks to. Sort of like saying, oh, Lord, God of my salvation. And then the lament, why is this happening to me? For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Psalm 32. The resolve. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. O righteous and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. See, resolve. Right? We're waiting for it. 
We want to end on the positive. We're waiting for that from Heman, but he never gives it. Psalm 88 doesn't do that. It ends with a crying out. It ends with, my only friend is darkness. Who wants to invite that person over to watch football in a few weeks? It's like watching a Coen Brothers film, if you've ever seen any, right? The bad guy doesn't get caught. The loose ends don't get tied up. There are more questions than answers. There is no happy ending. There is no resolve. That's Psalm 88. That's why it's the saddest and the darkest in the Psalter and perhaps in all of Scripture. But it's why it's also perhaps the most honest. This writer is saying that he is among the dead already. And like good Disney-esque Christians, we read on, waiting for the hope, waiting for the light, the resolve. But it never comes to us. In fact, it gets worse in a way that I dare say makes us feel uncomfortable. Verse 6. You, he's talking to God here, have put me in the depths of the pit. In the regions dark and deep, your wrath lies heavy upon me and you overwhelm me with all your waves. And then he goes on through verses 14 to 18 to question What is going on? To question God. And as good Reformed Presbyterians, right, we are uncomfortable right now because we are waiting for the psalmist to say, but God, you are sovereign over all things and and I trust you. Amen. Let's pray and, and go to lunch. But he doesn't. Nobody does. Instead, the psalmist points the finger right at God. And he pulls no punches. Are we comfortable with this? Are we sure it's okay to be honest like this? I'll be honest. I'm not comfortable with it. Uh, When people start talking to me like this, I get very uncomfortable. And some of the reason I get uncomfortable is because I want to help this person. You know, I want to fix the problems. I want to fix what's going on. And so what, what do I start doing? I start talking. Can you relate to that at all? I just start talking. And I'll either share of a time in my life when I was feeling down, right? Or I'll say something like, hang in there. God won't give you any, any, you know, won't give you more than you can handle, which isn't in the Bible, by the way. Great pastor, pastoral advice. Um, As I think about this, though, as I thought about this even up until this morning, you know, it's not the person I'm trying to get away from. It's the honesty, It's the frustration that this is what life is like and I don't want to deal with it. And in my talking, I am not allowing the person to be honest about what life is like right now, which this psalm does. Look back at verse 7. Your wrath lies heavy upon me and you overwhelm me with all your waves. I heard a pastor talk about this very verse saying that that water is is something that is for the most part um, pleasing, joyful, fun. It's enjoyable. It's something that we can even master. We can become really good swimmers. Uh, Maybe some of us learn how to sail and we can sort of master the waves 
of the ocean at times. But there are moments in life where that once playful scene turns violent and unable to be mastered like a hurricane or a tsunami. Those are waters that you cannot handle. And that is the picture that this writer is giving us in verse 7. You overwhelm me with all of your waves for many on a daily basis. Life is overwhelming and it feels like trying to survive in the waters of a hurricane. Which is way more than they can handle, Ryan. There are two parents in Dayton, Ohio right now, waking up, trying to get their arms around the fact that both their son and their daughter have been dead for a week. And the reason they are dead is because their son opened fire in a crowded area and one of those bullets hit his own sister and killed her. Along with nine others. If you are those parents this morning, that's a wave that is at the very least overwhelming. And you're asking yourself, who's in control here? God, why did you let this happen? You could have stopped this. Why are you doing this to me? Your body wants to cry out. And while I get uncomfortable with this type of crying out, thankfully, the Bible isn't. The Bible invites it, actually. This is the honesty of this psalm, and it just keeps going. It never resolves, but it's God's word to us this morning. And while its honesty can be difficult for us, it is refreshing. So what do we do with a psalm like this? I see it's honesty, Ryan, but how does it want to shape me? Why is it here? And it's at this point that I want to just draw four implications from it for the remainder of our time. The first implication is this. This psalm is here because life before glory has stories with no resolve. Let me say that again. This psalm is here because life before glory, before Jesus returns and raises all of our bodies from the dead, has stories with no resolve. What resolve will the families in Dayton, Ohio and El Paso, the 22 victims in El Paso, what will they have? What resolve or resolution do those living with chronic depression or severe mental illness have? Even when justice is served, what resolution do victims of physical, verbal, and sexual abuse have? What resolve do perpetrators of such acts have? Parents lose children. Children lose parents. Relationships end and are never repaired There is real injustice, disparity, and brokenness that will not be fixed this side of heaven. Sometimes it feels like the ending to a Coen Brothers movie. No happy endings, friends. No questions answered. Only more confusion and anger and sadness. And let me be so clear about this. I am not saying that there is not healing or there is not growth 
on this side of glory from the things that happen to us. I am simply trying to do what the psalm is doing, and that is describe what life is like before Jesus returns. Healing can come, but those bodies are not coming back this side of glory, right? Healing can come. Depression, though, may never leave you in this life. That's what the psalm's describing, friends. And we need to have a way to express those realities as believers, not hide them, not act like they're not there, not ignore them, not throw some, some type of you know, cliche at them, but to sit and to cry out, to express the realities of what this life is like. Golden Gay writes it this way. He says, it, talking about this psalm, focuses more on a wide range of ways of expressing the implications of the affliction, especially abandonment of Yahweh and by other people in this psalm. It was used in the context of ministry overseen by people such as the Levites, who encouraged people in such need to bring their agonized prayer to God. And here's the best part. It then provided them with words to articulate their experience rather than their experience generating the description. We could spend all day on that last line because that's how the Psalms shape us. They give us words to express the wide range of emotions that you and I deal with in this life. This is the first implication. This psalm is here because life before glory has stories with no resolve. The second implication, the psalm is here because this world forces us to ask, is God really in control? And I want to highlight the fact that that is the right question for many to be asking this morning. It is not wrong or a sign that you are not a believer to ask, God, are you in control here? What are you doing to me? What is this about? Remember, this psalmist is a believer and he is writing to God's own people. This psalm is God's word to you. If life doesn't make you ask, God, are you really in control? Then I would say you are not paying attention. And I say that softly this morning. This is the right question to ask. And this is exactly what Heman does in verses 10 to 14. But for the sake of time, for no other reason then there are aspects of this life before glory with no resolve. Does that then move on to question what God is doing? And in that question, God, what are you doing? Is always the question, who is in control? It is the right question to ask. But the way the writer asks this question is so important. And it gets to the third implication I want us to see, which is this psalm teaches us all the more where we are to direct our attention in times of distress and sorrow. 
while the language of the psalm is dark, the gaze of the writer crying out never changes. I missed it the first four times I read it. (laughs) That gaze, friends, is always before and on the Lord. We saw this in the very beginning of the psalm. Oh, Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. But hidden amongst the sorrow of this psalm, verse 9, my eye grows dim through sorrow every day. I call upon you. Oh, Lord, I spread out my hands to you. Verse 13, but I, O oh Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. This is remarkable. And that the psalmist in his anger, his hurt, confusion, distress, whatever, never stops coming before the Lord with his honest emotions, with his anger, with his distress. Every day I call upon you. Oh, Lord, and I spread my hands up before you. This is what got me this week in my study and why I think we have so much to learn from the psalm. Because I might be able to adjust and even go along with the honesty of this psalm. I don't think anybody in here is disagreeing with that at this point. I can agree with that. But what I struggle to do in this day and age is persist. Because I might cry out for a while for a friend or for something that I'm going through, but I will stop. I will fall asleep like the disciples. And I won't call upon the Lord every day. And here's why I will find another solution. I will find some way to be distracted because of the pain and the anger I'm feeling. So maybe I'll binge watch the newest thing on Netflix going on all in that day. There are always, there's always alcohol and food to numb what's going on. So is there. Oh, and by the way, and I've mentioned this before, you can order things on Amazon and get them like that day, which means that I can go shopping, right? I don't buy things that I need. I just buy things to take my mind off the pain I personally feel or the pain I feel because of what others are going through. Because if I stop for just a minute, I will begin to feel overwhelmed by those waves in verse 7. Waves that God could stop if he wanted. But the point is, we have so many ways to distract us today, to numb us, to fade into the sea of slothfulness. That to even begin to cry out every day. To carry that through this psalm is a miracle in and of itself, but not for this writer. He holds both the honesty and reverence side by side. He never stops. He never stops coming before the Lord, even as he points his finger. Do you see that? The psalm, though, hard as it is, teaches us all the more where to direct our attention. Where to direct our gaze in times of distress, in times of pain, in times of anger, in times of deep depression, if possible, in times of confusion. Because God says, I can take it. I can take it. Put it on me. Look at me. Don't stop, even with words such as Psalm 80. 
I would add to that for some we feel the need to be or appear strong when others are sad or in distress. We feel that we cannot show how overwhelmed we are by what is going on. That we have to stuff it. But this is the perfect place to both rest in and model the need for Jesus to handle what we cannot. To show others that we need Jesus too. And this gets to the final implication The fourth implication that this psalm teaches us something about God himself and why we can know the hope that he offers. As I said earlier, rushing in with God will not give you more than you can handle uh, isn't really helpful for those that are in the tunnel. But what might be, if not in the moment, but perhaps down the road sometime, is knowing that while God might give us more than we can handle at times, It is never more than he can handle. And we see this in the person of Jesus, don't we? That God had to take on flesh and become like us and suffer and die. So that what? So that the darkness we experience because of sin, because of the brokenness of this world, so that it would die too. It's been said that Jesus' death was the death of death. What we can't handle, he can. Because honestly, what do you say to those who, who lost their loved ones this week? What do you say to the chronically depressed? To children coming home from the first day of school only to find their parents arrested and detained. What do you say to them? Yes, there are words to offer. There are important things to say at some point. But nothing that you will say will fix the problems in front of them right now. Nothing you will say will magically make the tunnel disappear. What they need is for somebody to go into that tunnel themselves and what? And blow it up. For good. That's what Jesus does. He goes into that tunnel, friends, and he blows it up. But to do that, he had to enter the darkness like no other. And that's where this psalm becomes so hopeful for us. The writer, as you notice, speaks of experiencing the waves of God's wrath. But he speaks of those waves figuratively as a, as a poem would. But Jesus comes here. And he dies to take the wrath of God literally upon himself. Jesus becomes Psalm 88. You want to know who Jesus is? He is in the words of Psalm 88, crying out to God, why have you forsaken me? That is, he experienced life in the tunnel in a way that none of us will. And that is not to delegitimize what you are going through. Please hear that this morning. It is not to delegitimize it, quite the opposite. Rather, it is to say you have somebody who can empathize with you. Who can empathize with you in the darkness that life brings. Your Savior knows it fully. The best that many like myself can do is sympathize. And that just means that I can have pity for or feel sorry for you. But I cannot understand what you're going through. There is a distance there. 
But to empathize is to know exactly what you are experiencing because the other has been there. And that is Jesus, friends. And the hope of the psalm is actually knowing that it's meant to be sung today. It still is. But that because of Jesus, there will be a day when this psalm is sung no more. Did you catch that? The hope is that we still sing this song today. But that because of Jesus, there is coming a day when this psalm will be sung no more. The hope of this psalm is that it actually has a shelf life. I don't think I've ever said that about anything in the Bible. And while you and I might not see that shelf life expire in our lifetime, we are promised through the death and resurrection of Jesus that his kingdom is come and is coming. And in the final trumpet, all tears will be no more. And here's the best part. This is true for you, even if you never get out of the tunnel, friends. As we saw in Psalm 84, he, you know, his longing to be with you is so strong that he actually unites himself to you. Isn't that, isn't that the best thing to hear? He unites himself to you, and that means you will experience the day this psalm is sung no more. No more crying out. Theologians call this the already but not yet. That Jesus' kingdom, his reign, has already started in his resurrection, but his kingdom and his reign is not yet full or complete until Jesus' return. And this phrase is helpful to us because it helps us understand the tension that we live in today. Right? The tension that exists because Jesus has conquered death and is reigning, yet brokenness here remains. It's the already, but not yet. But at the same time, it doesn't remove the darkness of the tunnel completely. Death is still here. It is still among us. In other words, knowing that I'm in a tunnel doesn't make living in the tunnel easier, does it? Here's what one pastor who has been in ministry for over 20 years wrote this week on this, talking about this. He said, the already not, but not yet was so refreshing to hear when I was in seminary. And it sounds so good when you are teaching and preaching it even. But it is a beat down to live. That's honest. But why? Why is it a beat down? Because much of our lives, our stories, the side of glory won't resolve. So what do we do? What, what's the takeaway this morning? I think it's simple yet terrifying at the same time. And it's this. We have to become a, and, re, and remain a people who both hope and cry out at the same time. And you know how hard that is? who hope and cry out at the same time. That is, we have to be a people who can adjust the volumes of the already and the not yet in our lives in order to see those who are in the tunnel hurting but can't hear you so that those, or, the, or that those who are in the tunnel can begin to turn down the volume so that they begin to hear those who are next to them that they can't see in the darkness. For some, the volume is so loud of the already, right? It is Easter morning every day for you. 
it's, it's bunnies and chocolate, right? It is just great how great it is to be alive today. And that is, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, that is what I mean, though, by, by the volume of the already. But that volume can be so loud that you can forget the reality of the tunnel. And especially those in it. You forget about the not yet almost completely, and therefore you do not see those suffering around you. And the danger of this is that your only solution, your only words of, of, of hope, and with good intentions in this life for those that struggle, for those that are depressed, for those that feel that God has actually come against them, is to say either to repent or believe more, or just have more faith. Much like Job's friends, perhaps. What would it look like for you to turn down the volume of the already in order to see the not yet around you? Who might you begin to see by doing so? Such that you could become the tangible hands and feet of Jesus to that person in some way. By going into that tunnel as best you can with them. That's what the psalm is asking us to do. For others, the volume of the not yet is all we hear. In fact, it's so loud, right? And by the not yet, it's Jesus hasn't resurrected. It's just he's still in the grave, really. It's kind of that volume is so loud. It's so loud that there is no reason to celebrate, no reason to laugh or to have hope in this life. And while it is harmful to ignore the effects of the fall and to live as though sin is not present in this world as we just described. It's equally harmful to ignore the realities and promise of the death and resurrection of Jesus if you know it's there. Because I know that, 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 that there, there are some conditions in the tunnel you just can't hear it. And that doesn't mean it pulls you out of the tunnel if you hear it. But like the psalmist, it means you always have one to what, who? One you can fix your gaze upon. To cry out to day after day, to have a church to sit with you and pray with you with whatever it is you're going, to, going through to share that burden as best as they can. To turn down the volume of the not yet this morning is to know that God fully understands what you are experiencing and has sacrificed himself to the literal waves of damning wrath so that one day there truly will be resolve. A resolution that extends for eternity, a singing of Psalm 88 no more. What would it look like for you to begin to turn down the volume of the not yet in order to hear the already Around you, if you can. Who might you begin to hear by doing so? For all of us, this psalm tells us to be people, though, who what? Cry out. I don't know what that practice has looked like for you. I don't know exactly what that practice looks like here at Fort Worth Prez. I don't know what that practice looks like for me. I just get busy and I go and I go and I go. But this psalm is telling all of us to be people who cry out to the Lord. Does your ministry to others allow or lead others to cry out? Does it allow them the space to point the finger? As uncomfortable as that might be before the God of Psalm 88, who says, I get it. I know, I know, and I understand. To 
cry out to a God who says, I know what it's like to scream, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you cry out for yourself, for others, knowing we serve a God who cried out so that one day we will never have to cry out again? And that's the hope of the gospel. Thankfully, while we will encounter times when life is way more than we can handle, we serve a God who says it is not more than I can handle. It is not too much for me. So as we gaze upon that cross and as we remember the empty tomb as best that we can, we become a people characterized by both crying out, but also a people that knows that it's days of crying out are numbered. Amen. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for psalms like this that are easy to move on past and to get to the happy ones. Um, But that would be disingenuous to our own experiences and to the experience of those around us and most importantly to the experience that you um, shared and entered into Um, As you took on flesh and became a man so that you might experience the tunnel of darkness in a way that none of us can nor will we have to. And we give you thanks for that. We give you thanks for becoming this psalm so that one day we will not have to sing it ever again. For those that need to hear that this morning, would you open their ears to hear it? And for those who need to see those in that darkness, would you open their eyes that they may be the body of Christ for them in this moment? We ask this for your glory alone. Amen.